0: It is great to be with you this morning. Great to be back here. And for those of you that might be new here at New Life, please rest assured, if you come on a normal Sunday, you'll hear Pastor Rusty speaking. So don't let this traumatize you in any way if something is, uh, is alarming to you. So, but I am really glad to be back with you. My name's Chopper Wilson, Ken Wilson, whatever you prefer, either works. And I have the privilege of serving as the district coach for the Baptist General Conference of Canada. And we are thankful that New Life is a well-engaged family member of the Baptist General Conference of Canada. Across this central district, we've got 22 churches and they send their greetings. As they're meeting this morning, also in their faith communities, they send their greetings to you. And thankful for your presence in leadership In uh, financial support and just engaging in the conference. So we're really thankful for that. I will give you just a real brief word of update regarding our national conference. And many of you here, or some of you here, may have um, partnered with the outreach ministry that's going on in Armenia, the Discipleship Training uh, um, School Center. That's going on there and it's progressing. It's moving forward. This place where pastors from the region will come into this and they'll get some training and some relief and just some encouragement and then go back and serve in their areas. One thing over this fall that we went through was if you were there, you most likely connected with a young couple that had a couple of children and uh, I won't use their names, but they were going back into Iran they went back to reconnect with uh, the, the believers that are there, and while they were visiting, they were jailed. Uh, they took them and jailed them separately, and they have held them. The wife was, we were able to, in working with other partners, able to negotiate the release of the wife so that she could come out and she returned back. But at this point, the husband is still uh, being retained in Iran, So. Please continue to pray for them. We're excited. We're thankful that she was returned, but we're praying also for his release and that things will move forward. So uh, we'll definitely keep you advised as that goes. But thank you for your partnership in that part of the country as well as an outreach. Well, that's enough for an update. We're going to jump right into God's Word this morning and uh, hopefully come away with some new insights or some encouragements uh, that we can take from his Word you know, I thought it was really interesting, as I was talking with Pastor Rusty about the opportunity to come up and speak, he let me know that uh, in the new year, you'll be moving into a series on the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the beginning. How did it all begin? And how did God begin demonstrating his faithfulness in the very beginning? I thought, well, that's really interesting. As we are at this very important ending of the year, maybe I'll take, a t- take some time to talk about how it's all going to end. So, uh, we're not going to go into Revelation. It's not going to be a doomsday or an apocalyptic, but you will see this theme is really going to be important for us this morning as we talk. How's it going to end, and what do we do as it comes to that? You know, it's an interesting Sunday, the last Sunday of the new year, right? And I'm sure everyone here probably is anticipating, okay, ridiculous parties, things that are going to go on, wild games, all that kind of stuff. Does anybody have anything planned for this evening? Anyone? No, one. one or two. Okay, okay, it's a quiet community. I thought, Lisa and I, you know, we're having some friends over and stuff, but we're at that point in life where it's like, you know what, maybe we'll just watch a broadcast from the East Coast to make sure that the New Year got to Canada, then we can go to bed in peace and wake up and see if it's here, you know. It's, it's sad, but we're kind of uh, to that point of saying, yeah, I think it'll still come. Anyway, hopefully you're looking forward to But but this, this day... Marks across the world, right? The, marks this milestone of the passing of a year, and passing of time is something we are all dealing with. We all deal with passing time because it's a finite amount. It's not just a f- okay unlimited uh, flowing of time. No, it's it's a fixed amount of time. We all have milestones throughout our year. Right of oh yeah time is passing, uh, we have anniversaries we have birthdays. Everybody every, no one's immune to it. Some of us choose not to celebrate those things, but it's a reality. It still counts. As a matter of fact, how many of the how many people in this room, within the past twelve calendar months, have experienced a birthday? <laughs> Anybody? I didn't I didn't say celebrate experience. Right? We all we all know what that day is. We have that date. That's something we all live with. We know that it's not going to go on forever. That is, unless you are this tech billionaire. Now, I'm not going to give you his name. I do have his name written down here. But because this is recorded, it could go anywhere, or because you could be distracted to Google him right now. I will just tell you, if you're really interested, you can come to me after the service, and I'll give you his name. But. He has determined that he is going to do a biohack on life. Now, this person's a billionaire, right, made his billions in the tech industry, and he has turned his attention, his sights now, to biohacking life, by which he thinks he can extend life indefinitely. It's legit. He's, He's been engaged in this for over two years, and I'll tell you, as of the last reports, here's what his regiment includes in doing this. He's, he's investing a minimum of $2 million a year. Okay, so for me, okay, that's serious numbers. Yeah, yeah, you could do something with $2 million a year. At present, he's taking over 111 pills, supplements, or injections per day in order to accomplish this biohack. He is connected with a team of, of experts that are assessing him physically and his health on a regular basis, hourly basis, and making adjustments to those supplements and things to optimize his experience. He's altered his, his sleep habits and everything, and I'm like, dude, if you're going to extend that forever, it doesn't sound enjoyable. You know, it, it doesn't sound like, wow, you get to you know, play basketball forever or, or pickleball, whatever you want to play. It doesn't sound like you could do that forever. That sounds like a pretty restricting regimen, but he's seriously committed to it. You can Google him, and you can check his progress to see how he's doing. To me, I, I know it's a billionaire, but it sounds a little bit like a, a fruitcake, right? I mean, <laughs> who would think that? And if you could, who would want that? But he's committed to it. The rest of us know there is, there is a closure time that's coming. The ending of time is certain, yet it's filled with uncertainty as to when it'll happen, how it's going to happen, what will be the elements that are a part of it. But God's Word has something to say to us in the midst of all that. So this morning, we're going to go into the book of 1 Peter. You can begin turning there, it's toward the end of the Old Testament, and we're going to have a look at what Peter, the author has to say about this passing of time and what we should be doing with it. So you can, you can be turning to 1 Peter chapter 4. So we're going to read, read through the first 11 verses and, and share some context. But before, before we get into those insights, I want to give you just a little bit of a bigger picture. Why is he writing this letter? Peter, the author, it should be familiar to you, we hear a lot about Peter in the, new, in the Gospels. Right, Peter was that guy that was like, "Okay, good grief, Peter, are you opening your mouth again?" He was so sporadic, he was so impulsive, almost always saying or doing the wrong thing and getting himself in trouble, getting reprimanded by Jesus Himself. Right, this—that's the Peter. That's the Peter writing this book. By this point in his life, though, Peter has become an anchor for the church, a pillar for the church. He has been speaking to the brothers and sisters in all of their different communities, and encouraging them. He's a contemporary with the Apostle Paul. He was one of the apostles, and ultimately, his life was taken because of his holding to Jesus Christ. This book was written in 63-64 A.D., which may not sound like much, but in bigger context, Rome was burnt in 64 Okay? And you know, after Nero burned Rome, the intensity on the Christians was just unleashed. The, it's like open season, because Nero was blaming the Christians. It's the Christians who burned Rome, even though there's really no evidence of that. Most likely, he himself orchestrated the burning, but that happened. 65 AD, Peter himself was martyred. So this is right at, the, the, at the, the ending of Peter's life that this book is written. He's writing it to a group of believers. This is not a a letter that was written and saying, okay, I'm going to send it to this town, it stays in this town with this specific church and this group of believers. No, he addresses, I'm sending this to the believers that are dispersed in Asia Minor. For us, that's modern-day Turkey. That's quite a ways from Jerusalem, quite a ways from Rome. They're, They're out there. They had been dispersed because they claimed to follow Jesus Christ. And so they were, they were leaving and going in different areas, trying to find some, some safety. These are the people receiving it. They've already been dispersed, and they're, they're receiving this letter. And Peter sends it with the expectation for them to circulate this letter around to everyone. Don't just hold on to it, but circulate on it and encourage one another with it. The driving point of his letter is that there, are hope, there is a hope in desperate times. There is a hope for the believer in desperate and hurting times, in dark times, and his expectation is that the believer would live to glorify God in the midst of those dark and hurting times. That's where Peter's wanting these people to end up. So let's go ahead and jump into chapter 4 here. I'm going to read through these first 11 verses, then we'll come back with a few observations. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't want to join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves with the very strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever. You see, Peter had spent the first three chapters encouraging these people and writing things, and he's starting now to wrap up this letter that he's going to send to them. In general, he's wrapping up the letter. And he has some things that he wants their focus to be on, knowing that they are in difficult and pressing times. They are not in pleasant circumstances, and he knows that. He knows what they're living through. He has lived through it himself. So he has these encouragements. He says, first off, I want you to arm yourselves with the same mindset that Christ had. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. That should sound familiar because there are other passages in the New Testament where the different authors were using the same thing. The book of Philippians, the book of Hebrews, it says have the mind of Christ. Interesting, every time that it talks about that in those passages, it is in relation to the suffering of Christ. Christ was suffering, these believers are suffering, and the encouragement of the writers was to say, let the mind that you saw demonstrated in Christ permeate the way you are looking at this. It's interesting that Peter here starts it off by saying, arm yourselves. That's a very active word, it's not a passive, just hmm, yeah, I like to think about that. Peter, that's a military term that Peter was using. Just as he would have seen soldiers walking around in the occupied territory, they had all the equipment on, they were prepared, they had their their uniforms and their weaponry on them, but they were also armed with a mindset that was alert to any suspicious activity, anything that could potentially turn into an uprising. They were prepared to act in a moment. And that's what Peter's calling these believers to. He's saying, this is not just a passive mindset, of, oh, you, can, you contemplate this from time to time. It's an active mindset that should be overwhelming you. And to be clear, it's the mindset that Christ demonstrated while he was suffering. This is the mindset that Peter's calling him to. He says it right there. Just as Christ suffered, he knows that they are suffering, these brothers and sisters, these people that he knew. He knows they're suffering, and he wants them to hold in mind with them The same mind that had Christ had. When you think about that, Peter, of all people, had a front row seat to what that looked like. Remember in the garden when Christ was going just before he went to the cross and was praying? Peter was there. Peter was one of the three close enough to hear what Christ was saying. Peter would have understood this is where Christ was saying, if if this cup can pass, I'll take that route. But if it cannot pass, I accept this as your work. Be glorified in me. That's what Christ was praying. That's what Peter... It's undoubted that his mind had to go back to that. When he says, behave the way Christ behaved when he was suffering... He had to be a thinking of those exact words, those thoughts. It's really interesting here that Peter moves on and he says, I want you to live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for God's will. I want you to live the rest of your time to accomplish God's will. That's something that's relevant for each and every one of us here. I don't know. No one can issue you a guarantee. No one can say, oh, well, you know, I'm at this certain age, I will have this many years left. We all know the uncertainty of life. We will have, at the end of this service, we will have had roughly an hour less than when we came into this building as we go out. But we will still have the rest of our time. We all have that... That statement to apply to life. We have a rest of time. How will I spend it? Peter's calling these believers to a very distinct way of expressing the rest of their lives. What are they going to do with the rest of their lives? Warren Weersby says that Peter puts this phrase in here intentionally to emphasize the urgency with which they are to be looking at and considering the rest of their lives. He kind of reinforces it by saying, he uses a few verses here, and he says, you know, the way you used to live, you've already lived enough of that life. That, that, that amount of time is sufficed, it's, it's done. I don't care where you're coming from, that kind of lifestyle, we're done with that. Whatever was done in the past is sufficient, there's no need to do anymore, we're looking forward. We're going forward, and, and here's how we'll spend the rest of our lives. He goes through and he identifies for some of these believers, obviously, how they must have been spending their time pre Christ. And he says, Don't don't be distracted. Don't be confused. People will, they'll say, Well, yeah, you think you're not going to join with us in this? Peter says, Don't don't be distracted by that. They'll have to answer for that. You, I'm calling you to look forward in a way that's going to glorify God. He identifies the things he doesn't want them to be a part of, which are obvious. He calls them debaucheries. It's, it, try, to, try to work that into a, uh, a sentence or a conversation here in this next week, the word debauchery. It's not one we hear much too often, but he, he describes it pretty good. And We know what that looks like. He says, I don't, I don't know if spend, need to spend a lot of time even explaining it, so let me move on to what I am calling you to, a life that's driven by a motivation to glorify God. So he, he uses a number of verses there, but then he lands in verse 7 returning to this scene of saying, here's how I want you to spend the rest of your life for the will of God. When he lands in verse 7, he starts it off by saying, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, you may have a little bit of a problem with that statement because you're saying, wait a minute, Peter, you said that in verse 7, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, but dude, that was 2,000 years ago. We we're still here. We're still here, Peter. That are you sure you meant to say the end of all things because that sounds like an an apocalyptic statement. Peter was not declaring that okay, the world's going to burn and everything else is going to go away. Peter was once again emphasizing with urgency that time is coming to a close for all of us. For Peter, it certainly was, because within a year and a half of having written this, Peter was martyred. Peter knew that many of the people receiving this would not die a natural death, but because of their belief in Christ, they would be martyred. Persecutions were intensifying. Right during this period, Nero was in place. Right in this window, you start to see a number of the apostles being martyred. So Peter was looking around saying, look, it's, it's pretty evident even if things run their natural course, we have very limited time, but we're seeing the persecution intensify. The end of all things is it near. Peter wants them to have a sobering awareness of the nearness of the end of life. And he wanted it to reorder the way that they went about their lives. And he's going to give them specific, some specific ways that they can reorder their lives in a way that would line up with the will of God. I think it's really interesting, Peter says there in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near, therefore, I would expect almost the end of all things is near, run for the hills, head for the hills, look for cover. Almost kind of like, I don't know what it was like here in the Stonewall community, but do you remember Y2K when that happened? Is anybody around? Yeah, a few of us were here, right? Y2K, and it was like, oh my goodness, computers don't know how to compute the word2000, the year 2000, everything's going to shut down, utility bills will go through the roof, rockets will be released, uh, you know where, where I was living at the time in, in a different part in Ontario it wasn't Manitoba, it was, you know, those crazy Ontario people. There were a number of people that were stockpiling and hoarding items and like, "Wow, we don't know how long we're going to have to exist once this Y2K kicks in, you know?" And it seemed to go relatively unnoticed. I uh, okay, well, there you go. Now we're in the 2000s. That's what I would have expected, right? That kind of a it's, a, it's a panic. The end of all things is near. That's not what Peter calls him to. Peter, almost in my mind, it's almost like in, in a movie, you know, where you see somebody, somebody's panicking and, and someone grabs them and smacks them saying, hey, get a hold of yourself, get a hold of yourself. You've got to stay focused. That's almost what Peter is doing here in my mind. He's saying, no, no, this is not the time for panic. It's not because I'm underestimating the severity of the persecution and the nearness of all things ending, but I'm not losing sight of God in this. And I don't want you to lose sight of God in this either. Here's what I want you to do. The end of all things, is it near? Pray. This is what I want you to do. I want you to pray. And he qualifies it by praying. I want want your mind, I want you to be self-controlled and sober, right? I want you to know what to pray and when to pray it. I want you to be, have a clear mind. I want you to be focused and not, not distracted by the things that are around you. I want your focus to be drawn on God is still at work. Even in the midst of these dark and troubling or, or, or pressing times, God is still at work and wants to be seen through you. This is my expectation for you, brothers and sisters. As you're living dispersed, already dispersed. and Think about that. These people had already been driven from their homelands, their homes, their places. They're already that committed of followers of Jesus Christ that they had fled where they were at so they could continue to follow him. But Peter's encouraging them even all the more as his persecution grows, as this intensifies. What I want you to do with the rest of your time, however much that is, is to stop and pray clearly and in a focused way. Not, not a foxhole prayer like, God, if this just goes away, I'll, I'll follow you, I'll do whatever you have to do. Not that kind of a prayer. Peter's saying, I want you to be clear minded. I want you to be sober. I want you to be, sober means I want you to be free from intoxicating influences. Whatever else might be influencing you to say that, wow, this is marginal. God, I think this is slipping out of His control. I'm going to need to do something different. Peter's like, no, that's not the perspective. That's not the foundation of prayer that I want you to have. I want you to pray with a clear and a sober mind. Now, you might be standing there saying, Okay, so I want to play with the clearance somewhere. What do I pray? Well, this is echoed in other parts of the New Testament as well. You know, this is very much akin to what the James, the writer of the book of James, in the very beginning, James one five, where he's talking to the different believers and he's like, "Look, I know I need you to persevere. I need you to push through trials and testings that you're having. Once again, they're in a suffering situation," and James. Over 20 years earlier, this is 20 years before Peter writes this, James writes to those believers and says, look, I want you to persevere. And if you're you're lacking wisdom, ask God, and he will give you wisdom. The wisdom James was talking about there is the perspective that God is working through the trials. God is still accomplishing his work in them through the trials. So what do we pray? We can pray like James. We can say... Lord, I need wisdom. I need to be able to see this differently. I need your perspective on this trial, this challenging, this difficult circumstance that I'm walking through. I need that perspective. James and Peter, we're expecting that these believers, look, it's, it's a natural response. It is a natural response to say, mind. Just whatever it takes, get me out from under the pressure of these circumstances. But these apostles encouraged and challenged the believers to say, don't step away from the circumstance, but pray that God will be at work through it. In a little more of a contemporary statement, Philip Brooks, Philip Brooks who was a noted pastor, a speaker back in the, early, or the late 1800s, he's famous for this statement. He says, I do not pray for a lighter load. I pray for a stronger back. And his context there was looking at the believers and the followers of Christ in the early church and realizing the circumstances they had to go through. And he was preaching on helping us understand that. It's not about a lighter load. It's about a stronger back. And the stronger back comes from the understanding that God is ultimately at work through this. Somehow, God can make himself known to those around me through me, enduring this. It's much like the words of Christ that he prayed in the garden. He said, If this cup can pass for me, I accept it. I take that cup. But that's not the goal. The goal is not that the circumstance goes the way, the goal is that your name is glorified, and I accept this as your will. That's the kind of prayer that Peter wanted these people to lift up. That type of a prayer. Well, let's, let's move on. Okay, so he wants them to pray, clear-minded, sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Then he goes this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's what's really interesting. Somebody might and say, aha, Peter's calling for a cover-up, right? There were things going on in the church, and Peter says right there, keep loving each other and cover up the sins. No, no, no. no. That's not That would be abuse of the terms. This is more like the language that you would find in First Corinthians, where, where it says, and even in the book of Proverbs, where it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not easily offended. This is the kind of love that Peter is calling these people to. As they strive to live together in community and supporting one another, of course, there will be times for offense. There will be times where, as brothers and sisters in Christ, We get things wrong. But have a love that's resilient enough to endure those unintended offenses and to continue loving through that. Because what happens when people are under pressure? What happens when people are in desperate circumstances? Yeah, sometimes we do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, but Peter is encouraging them here to continue in love. They had already been doing it. But now he's saying, continue in love, because that type of love covers those offenses. It's interesting, he uses the word earnestly, and that's actually an agricultural term that Peter was using. And it would be used often to describe like a horse pulling. And if you've ever seen a draft horse... You know, um, it used to be very common, they'd use them for logging, for farming, for everything. Huge horses, not not like a quarter horse, not like a pony or anything, like these are large, large animals. They would would hook them up, and they'd start to pull, and every muscle in that horse would be straining and pulling. A a draft horse had no idea how to give you 70% or 80%. It just knew the moment that it felt resistance, 100% of power was applied and every muscle would strain. That's the word that he's using here. That is what he would have said. That's a horse pulling earnestly. He's like, that's the way I want you to express love within the body of Christ. Earnestly, so that it is visible, so that you are pulling with all that you have for this love to be demonstrated. Then, 9 through 11 he almost gives them an immediate example of here is how this love gets worked out in a tangible way, in a physical way. He says this, picking up again in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's really interesting because think about this. The early church. The early church did not have buildings like this. The early church had to meet, had to congregate in places, in homes, if they were going to meet. But now couple that together with... open persecution on the church, right? The political system, Rome, had identified Christians, ah, okay, we're, we're going to need to deal with these Christians. They're, they're causing an uprising. As a matter of fact, I think they've burnt Rome. You know, it's, okay, these Christians have to be dealt with, and you're doing a service if you identify who these Christians are, and we can deal with them. With that overlay, would you be willing to say, hey, I'll, I'll welcome some... Uh, some believers into my house so that the community of Stonewall would know, oh, that, that happens to be a pocket of Christians meeting there. I don't, I don't think so. Peter says, don't abandon that. Continue to show hospitality. Reach out, extend hospitality to the brothers and sisters, and do it without grumbling. Welcome them into your homes. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. As good stewards of God's varied grace. He's making it evident here. This is not because I am a great and wonderful person and I bring something unique to this community. No, it's God working through me. The concept of steward was very prevalent in this day. It's not so much around now. But the concept of steward was I know that I don't own these things. Like if if I'm investing something for a friend, it's like, well, this isn't really my money to invest. It's his. I can't just do whatever I want with it. I have to return an interest to him. I'm stewarding that. That's an understanding of steward. And that's what Peter's calling these people to. It's like, look, this gifting's been given to you by God for his community. So it's relevant for you as an individual. You need to be contributing. But also, the community of Christ receives something when I step in and serve in that. I am an opportunity for God's grace to be demonstrated uniquely in this community. I am a unique opportunity for God's grace in this community. That applies to each one of us. There's something about God's grace that he wants to demonstrate through you, through me, to the other brothers and sisters around that isn't going to be demonstrated through someone else. It's going to come through you. There was significance for the individual and for the community. This is what Peter wants them to understand. When the pressures come, it's not the time to disengage and to pull back. It's not the time to look after your own interests. You should be praying, praying specifically that God will continue to work through you, that he will be glorified. Remember, that's way, way back in the beginning of this passage. Was, that's what he said. He said, live the rest of your lives for the will of God. Pray that you'll see how to do that. Live your life in a way that you'll, you'll be demonstrating that to one another. He gives a couple examples of if you're speaking, do it as one who speaks the oracle of God. If you're serving, serve with the strength that God supplies In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Peter understood that in the midst of challenging circumstances, our natural response, our natural reaction would be to withdraw. would be to, how can I look after my own interests? What can I do here? And he knows that does not bring glory to God. His expectation is that you live all of your life in a way that brings glory to God, even in the dark, challenging, and difficult times. There uh, Is anyone here familiar with Latin, or any fluent in Latin? Is anyone fluent in Latin? Okay, good. I'm going to try this phrase, and no one will know if it's right or wrong. But this was a, a phrase, it was a Benedictine monk motto. The monks used this. Ut in omnibus glorificiur Deus. Okay, That was precisely accurate. And what that meant was so that in all things God may be glorified. Now, they were serious about it, right? They were serious. They they withdrew from society. They were like, in everything I do, glorify it. There's one really powerful example of this, and it's in a, um, a monastery that's still operating, still working today, but it was started back in the medieval ages, and it's just outside of Vienna, Austria. I, I won't try to say the name of it because... It, it's very, very close to some swear words, and if I get that wrong, everybody here is distracted. So I won't say the name. You, you, I can show you how it's written. This monastery, it was, they had a well, and this natural well provided water for the monastery back before running water was even available. They built a fountain over the well, and over the fountain, they built this um, just beautiful... Um, you would think it was a chapel, stained glass windows, very ornate, very, very beautiful um, building so that whenever they came in, there was the natural light, there was the stories of of the Scripture all around them, and it was right off of the kitchen, this well room. The purpose of this well room, predominantly, was, well, they could get their water there, but also every monk had the responsibility of coming in and washing dishes. Think about that. Washing dishes in a chapel... It doesn't really make any sense. Why would they put all of that work into what would be a utility sink, for all purposes? Until you notice there's an edifice. In the very top of this structure, there's an edifice of Christ overlooking as ruler. And before you come in, over the doors is this Latin phrase. So that in all things God may be glorified even in such a mundane task as washing dishes for other monks, you are to do this in a way as if you were in church giving full and undistracted worship. That was the expectation. That's a powerful example of a very mundane thing that we would just go through, but they say even in that, God is to be glorified. Well, I trust that as you contemplate those words in First Peter, that you might embrace the idea that often when we encounter challenges, circumstances, difficult times, we may be met with, well, this too shall pass. Right? This too shall pass. This, this won't stay around long. Time is passing. It will go, and this will go into the past. That's not what Peter is wanting these people to do. Peter is wanting them to embrace it and saying, not this too shall pass, rather, this is the path in which God can be glorified in my life? Am I praying in that way, and am I acting that way? So with the rest of our time, are we in prayer? Prayer that God will be seen through us, and that His will be be done through us. Are we loving one another fervently, earnestly, and practically? And are we serving in a capacity in which others recognize that is not natural, but that is because God is at work in me, even in the midst of challenging circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your challenges that are there. And Lord, as we look forward to this coming year, you know what is at hand for us. Help us to see every opportunity in a way in which you may be glorified through our lives, through our circumstances, and may be a vivid demonstration to this community when we live that out in an attempt to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.